Now, if you're under the age of six or so, you know who you are, or someone knows who you are. This is your opportunity to make your break, or you're going to be stuck for a long time. <laughs> All right, we're continuing our, our study of the book of 1 John, and today we're in chapter, chapter 5, and we're going to look at the dynamics related to eternal life. It's... it's uh, 1 John 5, starting in 6. And this is what it says. It's printed in your program if you'd like to follow along. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is even greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given of his Son. Whoever believes in this God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. This is God's word for God's children this morning. Some of you might have heard the story of Paul Tulane. He's a New Jersey native. He was one, he was one of the wealthiest men in America in the 19th century. And as he approached death, he was figuring out how to, how to disperse his estate. And he, and he decided he wanted to give his funds, his, his, his vast wealth, and this was about in 1850, but it was, it, uh, he wanted to give his vast wealth to a university that would name itself after him. Specifically, he wanted to give his wealth to the university that was in his hometown, the town of Princeton, and on the condition that they rename Princeton after him. And as you might have gathered, they refused his, his uh, offer. They turned him down, turned him, him and his money down, and uh, so the rest of the story is he went down to the University of Louisiana at New Orleans and gave his money to them instead, and that's what we think of as Tulane University. However, Mr. Tulane continued to live in the town of Princeton. In fact, he was buried in the town of Princeton, even though he always held the university and their trustees in absolute contempt. And as his last act of contempt, he got himself buried in the in the, the main cemetery there in Princeton, and, and uh, he's the only person in the whole cemetery who has a statue of himself on top of his sarcophagus, <laughs> and he's standing there with defiance, with his back facing the university. So, anyways, Paul Tulane is is like a lot of us, except he has more money than most of us, at least as far as I know, and that is we all. We all kind of have this question we go through in life is, how am I going to be remembered? What is the significance of my life? What is the meaning of my life beyond just the four score and 10 years I might have here? You know, that's one, one of the things unique about humans. Goldfish and German shepherds, they just, just get to live their life. But one of the problems with being human is we wonder about what the meaning of our life is. We worry about what might happen after our life is over to ourselves or, and what the significance of our life will be. 
And, and that's one of the signs, I believe, that we're made by God, we're made in God's image, as, as, as it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's placed eternity in our hearts, which is, basically means we're always thinking about what is, what is the real lasting significance of this life I live, of, of the things I do, and of the way, way of my existence as, as I know you know, some people, the, the wealthy among us, maybe want to have a university or a building in a university named after us. And then, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, some people just want to put some graffiti on a wall and hope that, that it doesn't get covered over. But that's the same impulse while trying to make a difference, trying to do something that will last longer than our own life. And we've got to do that because... If this life is meaningless, if there is no meaning to this life, then, then you descend into sort of this despair and this nihilism because what's the point of anything? If there is, if there is no eternity, if there is no God, then, then why should I worry about any choices I might make in this life? You know, I've noticed when the nice thing about being young is, number one, you assume you're going to live forever, so you don't really worry, and you assume that even if you don't, in whatever decades are ahead of you, you're going to be able to do really awesome things that are going to make a, make a difference in the world. But then what happens is, as life catches up on you, at a certain point you realize you're not going to live forever, and you, and you look at the things you've tried to do, and you wonder, what is the measure of your life going to be? And, and I, the Bible gives us all of this to point us to our need for Christ and our need for the gift that Jesus came to give us. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, our scripture says. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. What the Bible says is, regardless of who we are, whether we're billionaire philanthropists who get all kinds of bills and universities named after us, or if we just uh, if we just disappear when when we're gone, ultimately the thing that gives our life meaning is not anything we accomplish, not anything we give, not anything we do, but it's what was done for us. It's what was given to us. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And whoever has the Son has life. You know, for high achievers who think, well, how will I make my mark, what am I going to, what record am I going to set, what invention am I going to create, what achievement am I going to be remembered for, and for just regular, regular people who wonder about the meaning of, of life, sir, is the same. Ultimately, the only thing that matters is our union with Christ. Ultimately, the only thing is that matters is receiving the gift of his grace, the gift that was won and achieved by Jesus and by him alone. And it's the nature of gifts. The thing we got to keep in mind about gifts is they on, you only get to have a gift if you're willing to receive it. A gift doesn't cost you anything, but you can still refuse a gift. You can still turn down a gift. You can refuse, refuse to accept a gift. And it's the same, the gift of eternal, it's not yours until you accept it. So I want to talk about the nature of that gift, secondly, and then, and this passage shows us some facets of the gift. The thing about receiving a gift is you actually need to know how to appreciate it. Uh, you know, for example, if you gave me a, a designer handbag, 
that might be a nice, meaningful gift, and you probably had a reason to do that, but I wouldn't really know what to do with it. I might use it for tools or something like that. But, uh, but I, I, it would be lost on me because I not appreciate it. And it's the same when we talk about the, the gift of eternal life. The, you know, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. When we talk about what that really means, we've, we've got to understand the different aspects of that to, in order to appreciate it and, and be transformed by it appropriately. And, and the way he describes it here is he says it's, it's the water the spirit, and the blood. There are three that testify, the water, the spirit, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. And so what, what John is saying is there's, there's, there's three, th- three glimpses of the value and the meaning and significance of the gift, gift of God, the water, the spirit, and the blood. And those are the three things we've got to look to to understand it. First of all, the water, when he talks about the water, he's, he's, he's hearkening back to the life of Jesus and particularly the baptism of Jesus. And you remember the story of Jesus? It, maybe you don't remember the story, but when Jesus was just beginning his ministry, he, he went to John the Baptist, was going around baptizing people, and Jesus went up to him and said, I need to be baptized. And John the Baptist said, you don't need to be, to be baptized. You're, you're the, one, the one, the one I was sent to, to announce. Why, why do you need, need to baptize you? And Jesus says, this is necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, for Jesus to fully identify with us. And then in Mark chapter 1, it puts it this way. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn open and he saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What does is, is the baptism of Jesus signify? Does the water signify? It reminds us that Jesus identified himself, himself us on the one hand, and also, also at the same time that was where Jesus heard the affirmation that he was the beloved son of his father in heaven. He, the baptism of Jesus revealed his intimacy with God and his union with us at the same time. And so that, that's what the water reminds us of. It reminds us of, of Christmas, that God became one of us. And then what does the blood remind us of? This is maybe a, a little more straightforward. At the end of Jesus' earth, earth history, you know what happened to Jesus. Jesus he shed his, his blood on the cross. And that was a final sacrifice, the sufficient sacrifice, the generous sacrifice to take away all of our sin. 1 John 1.7 puts it this way. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all our sin. It's the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, that takes away all of our sin. We all know that forgiveness is expensive. That's why you don't like to do it. That's why when someone really wrongs you, when someone hurts you, you just, you just hold on to that grudge, and you just want to see them punished, right? Because forgiveness is too painful. Forgiveness is too difficult. And the Bible tells us that it's not, it's not just that, that us forgiving our brother or our sister or our coworker or our neighbor is difficult. It's also that God forgiving us is expensive. Because when you forgive someone, that means that rather than them paying the bill that they justly owe, you agree that you're going to absorb that cost. 
And none of us, us like to do that. For God to forgive us, that meant he had to absorb the punishment for our sins. And to, to do that, he sent his son to die on the cross in our place. And so forgiveness is expensive. And the blood reminds us that God's forgiveness wasn't just accomplished by a wave of the hand. It was accomplished by the atoning sacrifice of his son. And so that's, the blood reminds us of Jesus' identity with us. The, the, excuse me, the blood reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice for us. The water reminds us of Jesus' identity with us. And finally, the spirit is what makes this real. Because you can talk about this stuff and it can be like, well, this, this is just, this is what, what Christians believe, or this is just old, old Bible teaching, but it just doesn't really affect me as I'm trying to get along with my roommate. It doesn't really help me as I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do next year. It doesn't really help me with this anxiety or with this difficult diagnosis that I'm facing or with this problem that my children are having. It doesn't help any of us until the Spirit makes it real to us. The the Holy Spirit supernaturally makes the grace of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the, the, the love of Christ, the incarnation of Christ real to all of us. And, and the reason why some of, some of you talk about this, some of you can recite this stuff, but it doesn't really change your life, is because the Holy Spirit hasn't yet come in and penetrated your life and applied the work of Christ and the grace of Christ to the most difficult problems in your life. Think about this. Jesus' disciples had a, an amazing experience. They spent three years with Jesus. They got to ask him questions and hear his answers. They got to see him teach. They got to see him do miracles. He even was able to do miracles through them. They, they got to see him debate various people and all this, this amazing things. And then at the end, he says, guys, I'm out. I'm out now. And the, guy, the disciples are like, no, don't leave us. You can't leave us. We need you here with us. We're, we're just beginning to get this. And Jesus says this amazing thing. He says, you know what? It's actually better for you that I go away. This is John 16, 7. It's, he says, it's better for you that I go away because unless I go, the advocate will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, this is a, one of those amazing verses in the New Testament. He's saying, you know what? You are better off with, with the Holy Spirit opening your mind and opening your heart than even be with me walking beside you and advising you and answering your questions and demonstrating all of my superpowers uh, in, in your midst. Because, you know, it's possible to know the truth like the disciples but not be able to appropriate the truth. It's possible to know the truth, but not be transformed by the truth. And that's a supernatural step. That's a step that the Spirit has to do in us. That's a, and that's why, you know, for, for some of you, you know, maybe you're talking to a friend, talking to a family member, member and go through these things over and over again, and know they know all the, all the writers, but there's something missing. What's that gap that's missing? And that gap is... The, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Because the gospel isn't just information that we understand and can answer questions about. It's also a power encounter with the grace and love of God. So these three witnesses together, the water, the spirit, and the blood, all combine in one message, eternal life, which is the universal longing of all of us, whether we're billion-dollar philanthropists, or kids who are just writing signs, signs, all we want to do 
is make our life count for, for some beyond just our own existence. The costs and the benefits of eternal life, they're bound up in the water, the spirit, and the blood. But there's a, a big kind of global critique that's been going on for most of our century about this whole idea of eternal life. You know, the cliched way to put it is, well, there's some people who just want pie in the sky by and by. Or they say, well, these people are just so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Or if you're a little more, more erudite like Karl Marx, you might say, well, the, the problem is religion is, is opaque to the people. Put people up with all kinds of terrible things here and now, but it's just kind of like a drug that they take to endure their oppression so that they don't try to make their circumstances better. But the testimony of history and the testimony of the Bible and the understanding of eternal life from the perspective of the Bible is exactly the opposite. And you got to see that what the Bible shows us, what the Bible tells us, is that if you understand fully the Bible's teaching about what eternal life means, it doesn't mean that, mean that life is less significant. In a, in a sense, it means this life is more, more significant. The hope of eternal life means right now counts forever. It means your life can be leveraged for all eternity. And if God gives you 50 years or 60 years or 70 years or 80 years, those years can make an eternal difference in this universe. And that is actually the antidote to nihilism. And that's what actually gives us meaning. That's what actually gives us hope as we, as we go through life. Because as you go through life, I think part of the, part of the this, I guess you call it the process of growing up or just getting your getting your idealism beat out of you is you think you're going to make a, a difference one way or another. You think you're going to make an impact through something you accomplish or something you achieve or through something you're a part of. You know, that, that's why young people get all excited about various political parties and political candidates and things, things of that sort or different causes. But then as you go through life, you know, we, we try these different things. We try different relationships. We try different causes. We try perhaps artistic endeavors or scientific endeavors or, or financial endeavors or relationship endeavors, looking for that thing that will make our life worth living, looking for that thing that will make our life meaningful. And I, I think the universal experience of humanity is that we go through these things one by one, and depending on how energetic we are, it, it, it takes us longer or it takes less time, or we go through more or we go through fewer. But, but all of those efforts and all of those agendas find themselves frustrated one way or another. And so life can be, the more idealistic you are, the higher your ideals are, the more frustrated you're going to be with, with how your life act, actually unfolds. And I, I think points to something about the nature of this life. C.S. Lewis put it this way, when I find in myself desires that nothing on this earth can satisfy, that should show me that I'm made for another world, that I'm made for another life. When all of these good intentions, all these good desires that I have don't work out, maybe that points to the fact that my heart and my life and my soul is designed for something even greater than all this. And it's just a challenge for me to focus on that. On that. And so when we believe that right now counts forever, forever, it actually changes every area of your life. And you know, if we had time, I'd have a list of, of 12 things that uh, 
that, that are transformed in light of eternity, when we're living in light of eternity, there, there's pretty much every aspect of your life is transformed. But I, I want to just focus on, on two little things. One is, one is it changes the dynamics and then it changes the impact of our efforts to make a positive difference in this world. And, you know, like I say, all of us have different gifts, all of us have different resources, all of us have different abilities, but there's an amazing verse that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 42. He said, if you give even a cup of cold water to the least of my followers, you will not lose your reward. See, we tend to be impressed by, by dramatic acts of uh, general, general or powerful acts that, that tend to change, change the world. But Jesus says, if all you have to give, if all you have to offer at the end of the day is a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty, to a little one, that even that will find its way into eternity. Even our smallest, most insignificant efforts to do good find their way into the glory of heaven. And even when, you know, I think we look at our lives and sometimes we feel like what we can do isn't much. What we can do is it's just changing, changing life for 30 seconds till, till the next, next thing. But even that gains significance. Even that is part of the glory of heaven for you. A few of us can donate a billion dollars and get a university to change their name, but every act of grace and every act of mercy, see, and every act of kindness, especially our acts of grace, our acts of kindness, our acts of mercy that don't go reported, that are given toward people who can never pay us back, and people maybe who don't even appreciate what we've done, especially those ones that find their way into our eternal reward. So if we understand that right now counts forever, that's the greatest moment for us to be people of generosity, for us to be people of grace, for us to be people of mercy, for us to be people who are looking for ways to bless the lost and the least around us. So, so it changes, changes how, how we reach out, but it also changes how we see the tragedy of our lives. You know, I, I think there's a sense that every life's tragic. And one of, one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is I attend more than my share of, of funerals. It's, uh, it's just part, part of the, the job. And so when you, you attend your share of funerals, you spend more, more, more time than you like to thinking about the meaning of life and the totality of various individual lives. And, you know, sometimes you have tragic circumstances where you're attending and, or officiating or leading a funeral for a young person. And you know it's just an unmitigated tragedy because you think of all that potential, all that that person could have been, all that that might have been, and sort of the, the unfinished life, life that is represented there. there. But also, when you attend a, a funeral for someone who's much, much older, who's lived a full life, what you see, especially if you know them, if you know the backstory, there's always 
interrupted stories. There's always unresolved issues. And you know, we, we like to read books where there's happy fairy tale endings and all the strings are tied together and everything has meaning. But then we look at most of our lives most of the time and there's all kinds of loose ends everywhere and you're just wondering sometimes what the meaning is. And you know, the, the reality for all of humanity is there's tragedy, devastation, and loss in our lives, and we always find meaning in this life. And, uh, you know, sometimes good comes out of bad. You get fired from one job, and that just gives you the impetus to find a much better job. Or your landlord raises your rent too much, and that just gives you the motivation to find a much better living situation. Or a, a relationship breaks off, and you're like, well, that was devastating, but that just opens the door to a, to a relationship that's much better. And sometimes that happens, and sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes we see days later, or or three or uh, three months, months later, or a year later, how everything's worked together for good. Sometimes the reality is things just don't work out. There's a a lady named Kate Bowler who's a young professor at Duke. She's 35 years old, and. Uh, and at, at age 35, she, she discovered she had incurable cancer and probably isn't going to live to be 40. She, and she wrote a book about her journey. And the, the title of the book is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other, Other Lies That I Have Loved. Because you know, some, sometimes we see the reason why things happen. Sometimes our lives are just uh, nasty, brutish, and short, and we don't know what God could possibly be up to and why God is allowing these losses and why God is allowing these pain and why God even is, is allowing our, our best intentions to be wrecked. But the promise of eternal life in the midst of that is that our tragedy, our suffering, and our loss will be redeemed. And that's why people who believe in this and people who are following this and people who embrace the grace and people who are hoping for heaven can get through these things, can go through these things with hope and with confidence and even with joy. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You know, the life of the Apostle Paul, you know, the story of the Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, he got beaten up and imprisoned and ultimately ended his life uh, be, being martyred for his faith. And he's he's talked talk about that, being thrown in prison, losing everything, being impoverished, and, and ultimately being, being, being martyred, being killed for his faith. And he says, these problems are light and momentary, compared to the eternal weight of glory that I'm looking for. And, you know, sometimes some of the things in your life are going to work out, and some of the things in your life are not going to work out. Some of those aches and pains are going to be equally cure, easily curable. Some of those aches and pains are going to be the sign of something devastating that's going to change the course of, of life. But the promise that we have is if, is if we look at tragedy in our life, we look at the pain in our life, we look at the ag agony in our life in light, in light of eternity, we know that if we accept these things by faith, as we follow these things by faith, they become light and momentary troubles that are achieving for us 
an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. But sometimes it's only in light of eternity that we see these things. The reason we know this is because the greatest life ever was also the most tragic life ever. Jesus was this great teacher, this great example, this great miracle worker. People believed and understood that he was going to be the Messiah who was going to liberate his people from the Romans and usher in a new age of, of, of glory for the people of God. And then everything fell apart. You know the story. He went into Jerusalem, and rather than triumphing over the Romans, they arrested him, they condemned him, and they hung him on a cross. And everybody said, well, that was a wasted life. I guess he wasn't the Messiah because there's no such thing as a Messiah who gets crucified. If you get crucified, then you're, and you're obviously not the, the Messiah. You're something else. And, and so his life was like, in that sense, to an extent like all of our lives. All of these hopes, all of these dreams, all of this potential just wasted and obliterated by, by the injustice of the courts, by the, uh, by the cruelty of the weakness of his physical body. And, uh, and just like you wonder sometime, everybody who followed Jesus was wondering on that day, who is this guy and really what is God doing in this world? But you know the story. Three days later, later, he rose again. It turns out that it was all part of God's plan. All of the tragedy of his life, all of the pain of Jesus' life, all of the loss of his life, all of the injustice of his life, all of the triumph of evil in his life was part of God's plan. He didn't suffer that way. He didn't get rejected that way. He didn't endure that difficulty that way because he was less than his disciples hoped. He suffered that way because he was actually much, much more than they could comprehend. And it was until he rose again and again the dead on that first Easter morning that they could begin to understand that he didn't come just to defeat the Romans. He came to defeat sin and death itself. His message and, his, and the meaning of his work was much more than they could possibly comprehend. And, you know, in our life, as we face the tragedies, we face the difficulties, we face the inexplicable. Sometimes we'll understand what God is up to. Sometimes we just won't understand what God is up to. But we can look to our Lord Jesus Christ. Look to the one who endured death that he might defeat death. And know that even as we face the little deaths that we go through in life, even as we face the tragedies and losses that we go through in life, there is hope for our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the victory of Jesus, and I pray that you would help us to live in the light of that victory and to reflect that victory for those around us. Father, I pray particularly for those who might be facing personal tragedy, personal loss, personal pain, even in this moment, that you would give them a sense of hope, a sense of joy, a sense of confidence because of the victory of Jesus. We ask in his holy name. Amen.
and we're going to go into a time of confession before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want to read from 1 John, starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son purifies us from all our sins. If we claim to be without sin, we're only deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I want to now just get, give everyone a time to, of personal reflection. And, you know, the, the story of Jesus invites us to, us to repent of our sins, the way we've broken the Ten Commandments, but also invites us to repent of our righteousness and our religiosity, our tendency to, uh, to judge others, to depend on our own righteousness and look down on everybody else. And so uh, take, take a moment for reflection now. Father, Father, I thank you for Jesus, who became sin for us, for us, that he might conquer sin for us. And I pray that you would help us, even as we might be discouraged in our own lives and the way we're living and, and our personal status today, help us to believe in the sufficiency of his sacrifice on our behalf. We pray in his holy name. Amen.